0: Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Uh, my name is uh, Abbas Milani. Uh, I direct the Iranian Studies program here. Uh, this is the last uh, of our uh, events for this quarter. Uh, we saved the best for the last. Uh, some of you, of course, came to uh, yesterday's performance at the Bing Center. We had a remarkable event there last night. Uh, Uh, if you are not on our mailing list I suggest you get on our mailing list we have a large series of programs planned for next quarter beginning in April I don't have them here with me they include plays films talks poetry readings uh, panel discussions uh, and uh, much more Uh, tonight uh, we are very fortunate, and I am very fortunate, uh, uh, to have once again with us uh, Professor Hushangi Shahabi. Uh, it's very difficult to introduce Hushangi Shahabi, uh, for me particularly, for, because he's one of my favorite uh, colleagues in the world. He is truly the scholar's scholar, uh, he is consummate in everything he does. Uh, Uh, And he does a wide variety of things. Uh, And on everything he does, uh, he does it the best that can be done. Whether he writes on, and he finds remarkably esoteric subjects to write about. And on everything he writes, that becomes the standard, gold standard for that subject whether it is rice cooking in Persian, <laughs> soccer games in Iran, women athletes, Jews in Iranian uh, sports history, or easily the best work on the structure, the politics of a moderate Islamic group in Iran. It's a classic. It still is unrivaled. And when he began to write it, uh, Virtually the entire Iranian intelligentsia was occupied with itself and with the left. He had the wisdom to know that there is a storm happening elsewhere. There was a mountain moving elsewhere. And he wrote a book about the uh, Nehzat al-Zadi, the freedom movement. Uh... If I, uh, I decided that maybe the best way to give you a sense of uh, his remarkable accomplishments is to just read you some of the titles of some of his articles. I won't read all because some of them are in German. I can't sp- speak German. Some are in French. I speak a little French. I will try to emulate. Some are in Persian. I speak Persian. Uh, he is now a professor of international relations at Boston University. He has taught at, amongst other places, Harvard, uh, Cambridge. Uh, And uh, uh, his uh, articles in Yale, he has his PhD from Yale, uh, 1986. His MA from Yale, 1979. His diploma in international relations from Institut Etude Politique de Paris, 1977. He has a license in geography from the University of Caen in France. Uh, He is a member of Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, He is, uh, his publications amongst the book, uh, aside from the book that I mentioned, Iranian Politics and Religious Moderation, uh, are several books that he has written and uh, edited. His articles include, uh, for example, The Fakland Affair, an Eisenfall, Self-Determination, Territorial Integrity, and Falkland Islands, uh, Staging the Emperor's New Clothes, Dress Code, and Nation Building under Reza Shah, The Imam as Dandy, The Case of Musa Saad, a brilliant article, only he could find a connection between a dandy, a ultimate concept of French intellectual history, and Musa Saad. I think he now has to write the Dandy and Rohani, Rohani is the new Dandy. From revolutionary Tasneef songs to patriotic uh, so sh- shur? Sur- sh- shurud is mistaken here. You should correct this. <laughs>
1: uh, enough,
0: enough. En- no, let me, now I want to give a couple <laughs> of more. Haqqaviyar, caviar ha- turned out to be halal. This is one of the more famous, uh, Fatwas by Ayatollah uh, Khomeini, making chaviar halal after uh, 1,000 years. Uh, and uh, he's getting, he's also very shy. Uh, I was going to read a, a lot more of these. I have marked some of the more remarkable ones. But here is Ushanga shahabi a remarkable, remarkable scholar and a very dear friend, and I thank him for accepting our invitation. Thank
1: you very much. It's always a great pleasure to come to Stanford, uh, primarily for the introductions I get. Uh, Because introductions like this I don't get elsewhere. And uh, so thank you very much. I tried to blush, it didn't work. Um, But um, uh, here we go. Uh, It's really a pleasure uh, to be here and thank you all for coming and such great numbers. Uh, In his... uh, novel, *Sybil* uh, or the Two Nations, Benjamin Disraeli wrote about English society, uh, this is in the 1840s, that, I quote, it contained two nations between whom there is no intercourse and no sympathy, who are as ignorant of each other's habits, thoughts, and feelings, as if they were dwellers in different zones or inhabitants of different planets, who are formed by a different breeding, are fed by a different food, are ordered by different manners, and are not governed by the same laws. Three years before the Communist Manifesto, Disraeli defined the two nations as the rich and the poor. However, with growing prosperity, the cultural differences between rich and poor gradually lessened in the West. And as the great sociologist Norbert Elias put it, It is one of the peculiarities of Western society that in the course of its development the contrast between the situation and code of conduct of the upper and lower strata decreases considerably. Lower class characteristics are spreading to all classes and at the same time what used to be the distinguishing features of the upper classes are likewise spreading to society at large. This left economic and communal cleavages as the main fault lines in European societies. In Iran, and also in the Ottoman Empire, things were very different. Here, the cultural differences between the upper and lower strata actually increased, as the former, the upper classes, adopted European's, quote, codes of conduct. Um, but at the same time, rich and poor were not synonymous with westernized and non-westernized. This complicates the class structure that emerged, because in time, Western ways spread beyond the narrow elite of court aristocrats who had been in contact with uh, the West. As uh, in in Iran, as indeed uh, elsewhere, like in the Ottoman Empire, the educational system is usually credited, or blamed, as one point of view might be, for spreading Western culture to the rest of the population. The graduates of modern schools that proliferated beginning in the 1900s then staffed the new bureaucracy that came into being in the early 1920s. This bureaucracy bureaucracy plus the teachers and the military officers are usually referred to as, quote, the modern middle class. I find all three terms in this uh, designation problematic. Um, first, it's not all clear that all members of this group had actually uh, internalized modernity beyond the acquisition of a few European mannerisms and uh, a secular uh, education. Second, not all of the members of this group belonged to the middle stratum of uh, society. Let us not forget that the upper classes had been the first to assimilate European ways. And while they lost their monopoly on power, they did not disappear entirely um, and until the mid-1960s when the last Shah's land reform deprived them of their traditional sources of income. In addition, many sons of the traditional merchants actually acquired a modern education and became modern businessmen with lifestyles very different from those of their kith and kin in the bazaar, in the traditional uh, marketplace. At the other end of the the social spectrum, poorly paid school teachers uh, were certainly among westernized Iranians, but their financial situation had little in common with that of the big landowners who had been educated in Swiss schools. This brings me to the third term of this uh, construct, the modern middle class, namely class. If we take class to signify a social aggregate of human beings who are subject to similar conditions of existence and as a result are endowed with similar dispositions and practices and who are conscious of their common interests, Iranians with a disposition to adopt aspects of a Western lifestyle are certainly not a class. Throughout the 20th century, some allied with the autocratic monarchy others with the the Shiite clergy, while some advanced some advocated more or less secular constitutionalism and still others espoused Marxism. The most westernized people in Iran were actually members of the Tude Party. I therefore propose the term cosmopolitan segment for all these Iranians as it implies no subjective sense of belonging together, but draws attention to the relevance of cultural references that go beyond Iran, without having the pejorative connotation of inauthenticity that a term like westernized has. I don't like the term westernized because it denies people the agency to adopt whatever lifestyle they want. Uh, And for the rest of the population, I have a problem because traditional certainly doesn't cover it because tradition has this connotation of unchanging uh, habits and certainly the lifestyle of the other people changes as well uh, over time. Nor do I like native. So I will use Robert Merton's term, local, with all the problems that it implies, but there you go, one has to go to uh, the real analysis as opposed to dwell too much on terms. So, um, in what follows, I will try to trace the evolution of this, what I call, dual society syndrome in Iran and discuss some of its concrete manifestations. The origin of the par- bifurcation of Iranian society uh, go back to the early 19th century. The traumatic encounter with Russian military might, which inflicted two defeats on Iran in the early 19th century, brought home the fact that Iranians had fallen behind the West. Henceforth, rejoining the "quote-unquote" caravan of civilization in its march towards. Progress became the major goal of the Iranian elite, or at least significant parts of it. This was, of course, easier said than done. And since Europe was the only available model, modernization willy-nilly entailed imitation of the West. This imitation of Western cultural practices started at the elite level, most importantly at court. Mohammed Shah's 1839 decree on the adoption of European-style clothing by men is one of the first examples I know of. As the 19th century progressed, more and more Iranians traveled to Europe and became aware of the gap that separated them from Europe. Iran was of the, one of the very few non Western states that had maintained its uh, sovereignty in the age of imperialism. Uh, there are only six of them China, Japan, Siam, Abyssinia, the Ottoman Empire, and Iran. And safeguarding that very fragile sovereignty mandated that Iran had to close the gap. Therefore, catching up with the West was a paramount concern. One way to safeguard Iran's sovereignty was to gain the respect of the Europeans, to ensure that Europeans would not look down on them, but in fact would consider them to be their equals. And since the West, and therefore its culture, ruled supreme in the 19th century, imitating European cultural forms, for instance dressing like Europeans, sitting on chairs rather than on the floor, eating with forks and knives, were a very rational attempt to signify to the Europeans that Iranians were not a backward people. Iranian elites were hardly unique in making this uh, calculation. When I visited the Meiji Shrine in Tokyo a few years ago, I noticed the following poem by the Meiji emperor, prominently displayed at the entry of the shrine. It says, By gaining the good and rejecting what is wrong, it is our desire that we'll compare favorably with other lands abroad. The desire to adopt what is good about Western culture, while rejecting what is bad about it, and retaining that which is good about one's own culture, is, of course, common to most non-Western modernizers. Where they differed was what exactly is good and what exactly is wrong. And in this context, it is significant that the Meiji Emperor in Japan also started wearing Western clothes uh, and eating Western food. He particularly enjoyed wine with meals, for instance. And Rama IV... King of Siam famously asked the English governess of his children to teach him to waltz, at least if we are to believe the version of their encounter eternalized in The King and I. The state visits by non European rulers, where they insisted that the protocol attending visits by European monarchs govern their visits as well, are very often seen as a kind of expression of a childlike vanity on the part of rulers like Nasseruddin Shah and Mozaffaruddin Shah. In fact, they had the same function, to assert the vulnerable nation's sovereignty, for if the two sovereigns were equal, surely their nations would be equal as well. Or so they hoped. By the same token, rulers like Nasseruddin Shah and his entourage had to master European etiquette and manners, which they did. As the 19th century wore on, therefore, a few Europeans began adopting European cultural practices. This started at the court, was imitated by members of the elite who traveled to Europe, and also many members of the elite would spend parts of the summer in Tiflis, now called Tbilisi, in Georgia, where they came into sustained contact with uh, European culture through the Russian connection, which in the case of Iran is very important. But the adoption of Western practices was not limited to courtiers. European residents in Iran, diplomats, missionaries, educators, physicians, transmitted Western cultural practices to non-elite Iranians. And some Iranian merchants became acquainted with European ways during their prolonged stays in the Ottoman Empire and in India. Education also played a role, as in the wake of the Doral for noon, a number of schools adopted curricula that stressed modern sciences, thereby becoming transmitters of European cultural patterns to graduates, when religion, far from uh, dominating the curriculum, became one subject among others. What marks the partial and selective adoption of Western cultural forms by small sectors of the Iranian population in the 19th century is its gradualness and the fact that they were voluntary and not enforced by the state. When some of these practices came under attack by traditionalists, attempts were made to justify them in religious terms so as to prove that they were in fact not incompatible with Islam. Cosmopolitan Iranians lived in the same neighborhood as their other compatriots, attended the same religious ceremonies, the Khani, for instance, ate the same food, although increasingly men dressed differently. The end of the Ancien Régime in 1907 and the concomitant weakening of clerical influence provided a fillip to the westernization of Maoris. The gap widened between cosmopolitan Iranians and the rest of society. Fashionable dandies were derided by others as focoli, from French focol, false color. Modernists began attacking veiling, a cornerstone of traditional morality for the traditionalists. The contrast between the westernized Iranians who were alienated from their native culture and reactionary Iranians whose minds are closed to the outside world, both in fact caricatures, became the subject of some of the best-known literary works in, the modern, in modern Persian prose. I'm referring, of course, to Mohammad Ali Jamal Zadeh's Falsi Shekarast and to Hassan Moghaddam's Jafar Khan as Farang to a play and a short story whose subject matter is precisely this uh, contrast uh, between the two. World War I was a watershed for Iran. Roughly a century after the treaties of Golestan and Turkmenchay had driven home the necessity to catch up with the West, Iran was still too weak. So weak that foreign powers occupied the country, blithely ignored its neutrality, and battled each other on uh, its soil, causing immense hardship. In the aftermath of the war, the country almost broke apart, while an influenza epidemic killed perhaps a tenth of the population. It's almost a miracle that this sovereign Iran survived with its pre-war borders intact. After this, building a modern and effective state in Iran became a matter of life and death. The builders of this new state were modernists and expanded the educational system so as to be able to staff the new institutions they were creating. Institutions such as the judiciary, the army, personal affairs registered registries, and the territorial administration that now reached down to the smallest village, you know, the governors, district governors, etc. The state educational system created the kernel of what later came to be known as the modern middle class, which I problematized earlier on. Expanding the hitherto small group of cosmopolitan Iranians to include state employees, teachers, army officers, but also offspring of merchants and of rural gentry. At the same time, the state decreed a westernization of many aspects of life and propagated it in the press, which was read presumably by this nascent modern middle class. Some of these are well known, like the imposition of western suits and later hats on men in 1928, the unveiling of women in 1936, the introduction of music into school curricula, and so on. Others are less well-known, such as the prohibition to eat with one's hands in restaurants or the celebration of a carnival called Karvane e shadi Caravan of Joy, with processions of thematic floats on the occasions of Reza Shah's birthday on the 24th of his Fand, March 15th. Um, and this was done while the traditional Muharram processions and Tazir passion plays were outlawed. What's more, very little attempt was made now to justify the propagation of these new cultural practices in Islamic terms. Unlike what had happened in the Qajar period. Instead, traditions were invented to connect the new Iran with a country's ever-so-glorious pre-Islamic past when connections to the Aryan, cousins in Europe had been stronger. I mean, a whole generation of Iranians grew up believing that they were Europeans stranded in the wrong part of the world. Measures like these, most of the time motivated by a desire to appear civilized in the eyes of the Europeans, were hardly unique. Ataturk's cultural modernization in Turkey and King Amanullah's policies in Afghanistan were similar in nature, although not in effect. Nor were they limited to the Muslim Middle East. In the late 1930s, Prime Minister Piboon of Thailand, for instance, decreed that men had to wear western hats and suit, suits, that the new year would begin in January rather than April, and that, and this, I must say, is my favorite, husbands and wives were to kiss each other each morning as the husband left home for work. <laughs> Imagine a, governing, a, a government decreeing this. Uh, And all this to show that the Thai were civilized. I mention vignettes from Japan and Siam to show that the spirit of cultural imitation that is often ridiculed by historians of Iran was by no means unique to Iran. We may find some of their obsessions with behaving like Europeans puerile with the benefit of hindsight, but let us not forget that uh, the benefit of hindsight is something they did not have. The tasks they faced were enormous, and they were desperate and few in numbers, hence the sense of urgency that motivated them to take radical measures. The state that pursued this Westerni- these westernization policies in the interwar years was a dictatorial one, and so the cultural war it waged on tradition could be interpreted as a conflict between state and society. But as we know, Reza Shah was abdicated in 1941. And after that, the state had to relent on some of the cultural engineering of the past two decades. Religion made a comeback in public life, welcomed by elements of the Pahlavi state, fearful of growing communist influence. Communist influence that was unchecked since the country was under occupation with Soviet troops on it. By the 1940s, however, a sizable number of Iranians had internalized the cultural patterns propagated earlier. And none more so than the communists, precisely, who in theory at last rejected even religion. (coughs) Many of you will have heard the probably apocryphal story of the simple-minded Today member who proclaimed that the world had seen four great revolutionary thinkers and I quote this apocryphal Today member, Marx, Engels, Lenin, and from our own country, Aliebna Abi <laughs> Some observers noticed this new social divide. In 1943, Ahmad Kasravi, a uh, famous and uh, intellectual, wrote in his book, *Khaharan va Our Sisters and Daughters, quote, In a mass of people, thoughts and lifestyles must be cohesive. One of Iran's great problems is the unevenness of thoughts and the incompatibility of lifestyles. For example, while a large group of women cling to the chador and their face mask, and while the mullahs threaten unveiled women with the fire of hell, another group of women thinks of membership in parliament. Women's attire did indeed become the most readily visible marker of Membership in one or the other segment of Iran's nascent dual society. Around the same time, Ruhollah Khomeini published his book The Discovery of Secrets, Kashwal al-Asrar, which included harsh attacks on the cultural policies of the Reza Shah period, including, to give just two examples, one, uh, the teaching of music in schools, and unsurprisingly, the unveiling of women. In 1950, an Islamist group, the Fadayana Islam, published a program that was, in fact, a blueprint for Islamic governance. It devoted many pages to lifestyle issues and stated, for instance, that, quote, the fire of lust flames from the naked bodies of unvirtuous women and burns the existence of humanity, unquote. And, again, quote, most musicians have weak bodies like weak mem- women who are of no use. That is why illegitimate music has to be replaced with the recitation of the Koran and with a call for prayer. Hmm? Opposition to music and uh, unveiling are two hallmarks of Islamists in Iran. The fact that such writings also criticized corruption and political oppression lent them a certain plausibility and poignancy. This declaration of 1950 foreshadows the cultural policies pursued in Iran after 1980, although in the immediate aftermath of it, in the 1950s, the Fadayan-e Islam did not get very far. But I'm always struck by how similar the cultural policies of the Islamic Republic have been to the program of the Fadayan-e Islam published in the 1950s. After 1953, Iran was again ruled by dictatorship. And cultural engineering resumed, but not nearly as intrusively as under Reza Shah. But it was clear that social power lay in, ha- in the hands of the growing but still minoritarian segment of the population. Resentment against it grew. When Richard Fry, the famous uh, professor of Iranian studies at Harvard, visited the leader of Tehran's Friday prayers in 1960, one of the clerics one of the clerics present remarked that, quote, Everyone living north of Tartijamshit Street should have their throats slit. Mm-hmm. The reference to a transportation axis, Kiawana Jamshit, now known as Talerani Street, in this outburst leads me to the geographic dimensions of this dual society. For obviously, a street with an east westerly layout bifurcates and sets apart neighborhoods to its north and to its south. This refers to the well known division in Tehran between Shomal Shah and Jonub Shah, which I like to translate as North End and South End, by analogy with London's East End and West End. Traditionally, rich and poor Iranians had lived in the same neighborhoods, with richer people, especially merchants, not flaunting their wealth in public. In the course of the 19th century, the city expanded northwards, ultimately connecting with the suburbs of Shemiran, where rich Tehranis had traditionally spent the summers. In the 1960s and 1970s, upper middle class cosmopolitan Tehranis took up permanent residence in the north. And in 1965, after an assassination attempt, the Shah moved from the palaces in the center of Tehran to Ni'avaran in the far north, completing the identification of political power with the north end and with the cosmopolitan segment of the population. Gradually, the sociocultural divide between the poorer south end and the richer north end deepened. The degree of westernization, as indicated by outward appearance and patterns of consumption, became a social indicator in uh, Tehran. Among the inhabitants of the North End, the traditional reticence about showing showing one's good fortunes diminished, increasing resentment among the less fortunate in the South End. By the 1970s and 1980s, numerous studies confirmed the existence of this socio-cultural dualism, such as one entitled, quote, The 1981 Map of Tehran, Two Cities, Two Cores, Two Cultures. Let me add that we find this urban dualism not only in Tehran. Abadan, with its oil installations, was home to thousands of cosmopolitan Iranians who worked in the oil industry. When television was introduced in Iran, the only place outside Tehran to get a station was Abadan, which, which also had the only international airport in Iran outside Tehran. And uh, I should add that the contribution of Abadan to Iranian modernity has yet to be studied in depth. It is impossible to, deline- to delineate the two segments neatly. Any such attempt would be reductionist. The sociocultural dualism did not fully coincide with the economic gap between rich and poor. There were plenty of bazaar merchants who were infinitely richer than some of the university professors uh, who were plainly uh, cosmopolitan.